If you would, uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. Be in the first five verses of this final chapter. We'll, we'll wrap up uh, Peter's letter, God willing, uh, next week as we look at those final verses uh, in chapter 5. But for now, we're in the first five verses. Uh, you're welcome to remain seated as I read for us from 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Pay careful attention. This is God's word. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for uh, this, your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit, who inspired Peter to write these things, uh, that that same spirit would apply these words to our hearts. Build us up in faith. uh, Give us confidence in Jesus. And use uh, these words to equip us for every good deed, for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, When I was a student at Winthrop, uh, I took... Uh, a history class. I was a history minor. I often joke that that's why it took me six years to finish college. I just didn't apply myself. Uh, But I was a history minor, and uh, I took a a Civil War class with one of the professors there. That was his area of expertise and and interest in mine, and uh, it was a huge class. It was a full uh, classroom there, everybody eager to, to hear this professor. And at the beginning of the semester, Uh, He kind of gave us a little bit of a pep talk, a little bit of a speech before the class uh, began in earnest, and he kind of laid it all out for us. He said, look, this is a hard class. We're going to cover a lot of information. I'm going to expect a lot out of you and exams and papers and so forth, but I want you to know that I'm with you through the whole thing. So if you fall down, I'm going to be there to pick you up. We're going to dust you off. We're going to keep on going, so just don't give up. I'll help you get through this class, but it's going to be tough. In many ways, I think Peter is doing something similar as he's writing tough things to these churches uh, in Asia Minor, in kind of the eastern part of the Roman Empire. Uh, He has said hard things. We've talked about hard things in this letter uh, that Peter wrote. We've talked about the, the very real Uh, possibility, the reality of suffering for your faith in Jesus Christ, that that sometimes taking a stand and identifying yourself with Jesus as one of his people, that sometimes that brings opposition, and that that could be hard, and that there's temptations that come along with that to, to give up, to compromise, to respond to those pressures in sinful ways rather than trusting our faithful creator while doing good. We've talked about hard things. 
We've talked about the reality of persecution for our faith. Uh, many of us, probably most of us, have, have not experienced a, any hard form of that. Uh, maybe you have uh, loss of friends, loss of, of job, uh, loss of security because of your identity with Christ. Uh, the folks that Peter was writing to, they were experiencing that. They were a minority, a religious minority in the empire. They were on the fringe. They were ostracized for their faith. And Peter was encouraging them, don't be ashamed of Jesus. Hold on to him and rejoice when you have opportunity to suffer for the name of Christ and trust your souls to a faithful creator. He's called them to do hard things. And yet along the way, he's given them encouragement. You share in the sufferings of Christ. Uh, your endurance now is evidence of your salvation and the hope that is to come. Christ is with you. He's, he's blazed the trail. He suffered in your place for you. Hold fast to him by faith and he will hold fast to you. When we come to this passage this morning in, in 1 Peter 5, it's sometimes tempting to kind of segment this, these verses off and kind of isolate them. We often do that. We use these verses to preach about elders and the qualifications of elders, often forgetting where these verses come from and, and what Peter has just said prior to that. But there's a connection. Peter is encouraging the elders among these churches to whom he's writing to remember that they are the church in exile. They are the church in the wilderness of this world. And as long as they're in exile looking forward to their home, in glory with Jesus. As long as they are in exile, they will face opposition as the gospel goes forward. There will be difficult times and what is needed for God's people in the midst of that as the church in exile is for godly leadership to help God's people faithfully live for Christ no matter what comes their way. So Peter gives this instruction to elders not in isolation from what the church is enduring, but because of what the church is enduring and calls elders to exercise godly leadership as an expression of love to Christ, whose people we are, and calls the church in response to that leadership to joyfully submit and for everyone to humbly serve one another in, for the honor of the Lord Jesus. So let's look just briefly at uh, three points from this passage. I said briefly, I should not say that at the beginning of the sermon. Um, somebody reminded me of that recently. Uh, let's look at three points from this passage, and we'll see how, how briefly uh, it is. Let's look first at the context of, of this, these instructions to elders, which we've, we've already mentioned in part. Peter is writing to the church in exile. He starts chapter 5 with this little word. My translation says, so, S-O. Maybe your translation says, therefore, it's always a good practice in Bible reading to uh, ask questions about those little connecting words. If you have a therefore, it's always good to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Right? I thought some of you were going to say that. Uh, why, what, what connection is Peter making here? As we've said, Peter is making this connection between the, the work of the elders and the suffering of the church. Peter is reminding the elders that they have a responsibility to God's people. As long as we live in this exile, as long as we are waiting for Christ to return and to bring us home, that elders have a responsibility to faithfully shepherd God's people through the wilderness. Of course, this motif is all over the Bible. 
Moses was a shepherd in the wilderness before God called him to rescue God's people, used him to rescue God's people from Egypt. David, King David, was a shepherd over God's people um, as the king, but also a literal shepherd. And of course, we know David's probably most famous word, Psalm 23. David says, the Lord is our shepherd. He's the one who cares for us completely, totally, comprehensively. And he calls elders to do that same, to carry out that same role in the life of the church while the church is waiting, while the church is hoping, looking forward to that day when Christ shall return. The elders are called to carry out their role among the church while the church is in exile in the wilderness. So that's the context of the elder's role. Let's look at the character of the elder. And here's where we want to park our car for for most of our time here. Uh, Peter highlights here the centrality of the heart, the integral importance of character among the leadership of God's people. You know, as well as I do, uh, as leadership goes, so goes the rest of the organization. That's, That's true of every organization. If you have leadership that's compromised or corrupt, lacks integrity, uh, that impacts the whole organization underneath them. And, And for the church, as followers of Jesus Christ, character, integrity, the heart, all of these things are so absolutely central to the life of God's people. And so Peter highlights the importance here of the character of those who would be called to serve as overseers, shepherds, elders in God's church, those who are entrusted with the care, spiritual care of God's people. So I want to look at uh, these three contrasting portraits that Peter paints for us regarding the character of the elder. He gives us three things, not this, but that. Uh, I just want to look at these uh, one after another. First notice in verse 2, he calls them to exercise oversight not under compulsion, but willingly. He is reminding us of the importance of the desire and the motivation that lies behind the work of the elder. And so when he talks about compulsion, what's he he mean there? He's describing a situation in which you're making choices based on solely outside pressures. And some of those pressures can be good, positive. Uh, Probably most of us would want to have a strong sense of duty, Right? That even if I don't feel like doing something, I'm going to do it anyway because it's my responsibility, it's my duty to carry this out. And then there's nothing wrong with that. But Peter is here reminding us that there's something fundamentally more important than, than just operating with a sense of duty. That only gets you so far. There's a difference, in other words, between compulsion and conviction. The one comes from the outside, the other comes from the inside, from from your heart. You think about it this way, C.S. Lewis describes um, acting only on the basis of duty, he he describes it as kind of a crutch, right? He says, "It'll, it'll get you far enough if your legs don't work, but it's no substitute for love. And if your legs work, you don't want to use a crutch. And so he's calling, Lewis is reminding us there that the ultimate motivation for service leadership in the church of Jesus Christ is not just duty. There's a sense in which that's super important, but there's more than that. They were called to serve out of love, 
out of a, a willingness of the heart, a desire to serve and to love God's people, not out of compulsion, but willingly. You know, you know what happens when you are only driven by some external force of, of duty or responsibility. When it gets hard, it's easy to push the duty aside, to push the responsibility aside, and to say, well, I've checked the box. You know, I kind of, I did my duty, and now I'm going to check out. But the call to leadership in the church calls for something much deeper than that. It calls for love, a willing heart to lead and to love God's people, even when uh, it's difficult, or perhaps especially when it's difficult. Notice, secondly, Peter says, not uh, for shameful gain at the end of verse 2, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. In other words, we're not just in it for the money. Uh, That's what he means by shameful gain. And it's probably obvious why he highlights uh, this contrast here. Uh, His point is that elders, shepherds, overseers in the church of Jesus Christ, they're called for the service of others and not primarily for the service of, of themselves. And therefore, their motivation should not be their own personal gain some sort of earthly reward for what they're doing. And that that comes in lots of different ways. Uh, It comes in recognition. Am I going to be recognized? Am I going to be praised? Am I I serving so that people will exalt my name and I will somehow gain out of that? Or am I serving, serving because I am eager to love and to serve God's people? Jesus highlights this in his interaction with Peter which I think is kind of at the heart of why Peter is saying these things. And Jesus' interaction with Peter, uh, after the resurrection, before Jesus ascends into heaven, he restores Peter from his previous denial of Jesus right before the cross. Remember this beautiful scene, Jesus and Peter walking on the beach. The other disciples are there as well. And Peter says, Jesus rather says to Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Uh, do you love me? Do you love me? And each time Peter says, yes, Lord, you know, I love you. And, and, and each time Jesus responds and says, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep, which is another way of saying elders, shepherds, overseers in the church are called to express their love for Christ by loving the people that Christ loves. It's an others-oriented Service. It's not, you're, you're not in it for shameful gain, but rather for the service of others. There's a brief illustration of this. When I was in uh, college, uh, I was more arrogant than I am now. That's probably not true. Um, I was arrogant, <laughs> pretty prideful, and uh, was often looking for opportunities to display, you know, things I know and how I'm better than other people and so forth. And um, there was one, one instance where uh, some friends of ours, we were sitting around watching um, televangelists, you know what I'm talking about, kind of um, TV preachers, and, and you know that they're not, not always, not everybody, but, but often uh, the case is that you have somebody on the TV, and they're giving a message or whatever, and at the end of that message, what do they ask for? Their money. And this one in particular, uh, his, here was his offer that I took him up on. Uh, he said, I'm going to, if, you, if you'll contact my organization, I'll send you a dollar, okay? 
And then I want you to send me that dollar back with 99 other dollars. And in return for, for your donation, um, you'll receive a blessing as a result of my prayers. This was kind of the deal. So I thought, I'm signing up for this. Let me get my dollar. This is the prideful part. I was just looking for somebody to you know, make fun of or whatever. Well, to my surprise, I, I got in the mail uh, shortly after that. An envelope had a crisp dollar bill in it, and it had a folded up calendar. Um, bigger than a, a piece of paper and had all the days of the month kind of around the perimeter of the paper. And in the middle of the paper was the preacher's face and his hand, and he was doing this. And the idea was that each day you put the piece of paper on the refrigerator and you, you get down and you pray and you put your hand on his hand and you pray for your blessing after you send back your 99 plus one dollars. Now, what's the motivation behind that? What, I mean, how many people were willing to send back $99 for that? It, it's, those are the things where it's easy to see. Here's somebody who is seeking leadership, seeking some position of authority, seeking some position of influence. Why? For gain, for their own personal gain. It'd be easy to sit back and just judge everybody who does that, but Peter's pointing at us. He's, he's poking us and he's saying, examine your own heart. Are you leading because you want to gain something from others? Or are you leading, are you overseeing God's people out of an eagerness to love and to care for them as an expression of love to Christ? What's your motivation? And finally, this third contrast he highlights in verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Again, you hear that theme there. Leadership for others. Why does Jesus give authority to elders in the church, in, in his church? Not so that they can abuse that authority for their own purposes, their own gain, their own reputation. He gives authority to leaders in Christ's church so that they might lay down their lives for others serve as an example to those under their care. Now, where is Peter getting this? He's getting it from Jesus. There's a, a beautiful picture of this in the Gospels where Jesus is walking with his disciples, and he knows that they're arguing. I love that the disciples are real people. <laughs> they're not candy-coated. They're arguing, and Jesus stops, and he says, what are y'all talking about? And they're a little embarrassed, and the reason they're embarrassed is because they say, we were discussing which one of us was the greatest. you imagine saying that to Jesus? He says, what are you guys talking about? Oh, we're debating which one of us is the best. Jesus hears that and he says to them, the greatest among you should be the least among you. You want to be first? Be a servant to everyone else. And then he gathers children around him. And he, and he says, uh, if you receive any of these children... Uh, in my name, that, that's what's great in the kingdom of heaven. Notice he, he flips kind of the typical way we think about leadership and authority. It's just so opposite of how things work in the rest of the world. The church is meant to be this antithesis to the way power operates in the world. Jesus gives authority to elders in the church so that they can lay down their lives as an example to demonstrate to those under their care the faithful love of Christ himself. 
Because you see, it's not just something that Jesus calls leaders to do for the church. It's what Jesus himself did for the church. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, to have this same attitude in ourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed uh, in the form of God, he is God, that's what he's saying, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held onto tightly. Instead, what did he do? He humbled himself. He, he became a servant. He became a man like us in every way except without sin. And he became obedient all the way to death on a cross. Jesus not only calls leaders in the church to a humility, a laying down of authority and, and life for the sake of those who belong to Jesus, Jesus did that himself. Our lives, the life of the church, the way the church operates, the way Christians live, all of it, Peter's saying again and again, is shaped by the love of Jesus Christ demonstrated in his cross, in his self-giving for us. And leaders are to lead by example in that self-giving love, laying down our lives for the sake of others. Leadership in the church is meant to bear the mark of another world, a world characterized by grace. And yet, how often do we imitate the way the world around us leads? Self-assertion. Put yourself forward. Rely on yourself. Build your platform. Build your kingdom. And Jesus says, I'm building my kingdom, and I'm calling you to imitate me as you lay down your life for others, to love those whom I have loved. A leader is one who serves. A leader is one who gives himself for the sake of others, who uses his gifts, his authority in the church for the good of the body, to set an example. The character of the elder, Peter highlights the centrality of the heart. And notice finally in this, this last section, he calls all of us to this, uh, not just leaders, but the whole church, uh, to clothe ourselves with humility. He, he speaks first to those who are younger, calling them to submit themselves to the leadership in the church. But notice at the end of the last part of verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, both leaders and those who are led, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. It's, it's an interesting word picture. What kind of clothing are we supposed to wear in the church? Peter says it's the clothing of humility, which is another way of saying humility is meant to characterize everything that you do in the life of the church. It is, in that sense, kind of a cardinal virtue among God's people. What is humility? Why is it important? And what does this mean for us, just as we finish here? In some ways, you might describe humility as simply having a proper view, a true view of yourself, rooted in a view of who God is and what he has done for you in Jesus Christ. Um, sometimes we think of humility as like self-deprecation. You know, oh, I'm the worst. Um, I'm just a worm. You know, that, that kind of just beating yourself up. But that, one writer has said humility is not necessarily thinking less of yourself. You know, I'm the worst, etc. 
Humility is thinking of yourself less. What's your experience like when you encounter a, a truly humble person? Uh, you probably walk away thinking, well, that person was really interested in me. That person didn't talk about themselves hardly at all. They were asking me about my life. They were asking how they could serve me. They were asking uh, how they could demonstrate love towards me. They weren't even thinking about themselves. They weren't putting themselves forward. And that's, that's what humility looks like. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So that Jesus might be exalted in your life. So that others might be put ahead of you. We see who we are in light of who God is and in light of his grace to us in Jesus Christ. And that, that keeps us humble. Uh, Richard Baxter, a, a Scottish pastor from the 17th century, um, said this about humility. That the very design of the gospel is to humble us. That the work of grace is begun and carried on in humiliation. That humility is not a mere ornament of a Christian, but an essential part of the new creation. It is a contradiction in terms, he says, to be a Christian and not be humble. We're called to humility, a proper view of ourselves in light of a proper view of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. We're also called to humility because this is the pattern set by Jesus himself and the attitude of heart that he calls us uh, to imitate, to adopt the way he has shown his love for us, who gave himself at the cross, who willingly laid his life down for his people, who, who though he is God, exalted above all, humbled himself to love us and to bring us into his kingdom through his sacrifice at the cross and his resurrection on the third day. And our response to that ought to be humility. No boasting in ourselves, but boasting only in the Lord as we see the depth of his love for us in Christ. Notice finally this promise that Peter attaches, that God attaches to humility. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let me close by just asking a question of, of us. Uh, first, first for, for those of you who belong to Jesus, what, what should this humility look like in, in our lives? How, how do we live as a humble people? Maybe just a few areas to think about. There's, there's more that you could say than this. So just, we'll just pick a couple or a few. Uh, one, the humble person receives rebuke without self-defense. The humble person receives rebuke without self-defense. The humble person believes and knows that his righteousness, her righteousness, is in Jesus. That it's secure in him. That our standing with God is not on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of what Christ has done. And so we can humbly receive when somebody comes up to us and says, Dave, you shouldn't have said that. Or, you know, why are you being so unkind? Or, you know, you're being thoughtless or, or whatever. Somebody comes and rebukes you out of love for your sin. You know, your immediate, or at least for me, my immediate reaction is, hold up, what about you? Or, you know, some sort of self-defense. The, the one who is humble, who's embraced God's righteousness in Jesus Christ, can receive that rebuke without self-defense. Because Jesus has given us a righteousness that can't be diminished 
Our standing with God is secure because of what Christ has done, and that'll never change. But we can change. We can humbly receive correction and rebuke because our righteousness is in Christ. Those who are humble will be patient with others because God has been patient with us. He has been patient with us in our our sin, our slow growth, and we are called, therefore, to be patient with others. Those who are humble can forgive because we have been forgiven uh, by the living God himself. And those who are humble can look to others how we might serve one another in love because this is, in fact, what Christ has done for us. Uh, He has served us. He came not to be served, he says, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the, the humble person seeks opportunities to serve others. If you're not yet a believer, if you're not yet a a Christian, here's the question for you. Do you know the kind of love that Jesus has demonstrated for his people? The kind of love that led to his humbling of himself all the way to the cross, raised on the third day. He was exalted after his humility. Do you know the kind of love that takes that shape? that the God of the universe would give his son in our place and would take our sin upon himself at the cross and bear it away and humbly, sacrificially give himself for sinners and who would promise to us that if we would believe in him, that he will welcome us as his beloved people. Do you, do you know that kind of love? Self-giving humility and love of Jesus Christ. We call you to consider uh, where you are today uh, if you have received and rested upon what Christ has done for you in the gospel. And, And if you have, to respond with the humility and the gratitude that is appropriate to that. Would you pray with me?